Welcome to Gaia's Love, a podcast of brief messages to help humanity bridge the gap to the new earth. My name is Vivian Gerard. It is my delight to be a scribe for consciousness today, sharing the wisdom that flows through from source. Here we go. Episode 108. It is Wednesday today. It's another gorgeous winter day, freezing cold outside, but the sun is shining, skies are blue. Everything feels very crisp today. I arrive reflective and yeah, a little sad today. I was reading, um, not reading really, scanning through some posts and this one popped up about a healer who I've heard a lot about from Brazil and he has been arrested for um, alleged sexual abuse in his healing and um, he's an internationally recognized person who has been seen as a leader and a spiritual teacher and I have sat with that in meditation this morning just uh, grieving the way that so many of us, myself included, we have all had these journeys of being in beautiful integrity with our souls and our humanness and then being out of integrity and making choices that we are proud of and then making choices that we regret and you know, doing things that we know are beautiful and amazing for the world and then doing things that we just are disappointed in ourselves for, you know, and it's this human journey is such a mix of all of that as um, as I have gone through my own journey my own soul journey my own healing you know I've been divorced remarried I have children I'm a daughter a wife a mother like all of these roles are human experiences and there are days I'm brilliant and amazing at it and there are days I am awful. I am an awful example of patience or kindness or compassion or love and and we I we weave through all of it and when these examples are brought out and reflected to us, you know, it's no coincidence I saw that article. I don't scan the news very often and I saw an article I needed to see at a time where I'm really exploring, you know, what does integrity look like as a healer and how do you uh, honor the way that you do your healing work and your gifts and, and express clearly what it is you do while holding your own connection to source or God or whatever your pure channel is, holding that so steady that you can expand your work, you know, right as I uh, shared this past weekend that I'm doing this new version of healing sessions. Of course, a few days later comes this story of someone who has been horribly out of integrity in the way that he does his healing sessions. And and so, you know, life is constantly showing us 
reflecting to us the places where we are in alignment and where we're not, where our ego is running the show and where our soul is running the show, the purest, highest expression of our soul. And we're all both. We're all a mix of all of it, you know, at different levels, at different um, contrasts, at different ends of the continuum. Hopefully not all of us have to go to the worst parts of it, the shadowiest shadow parts of it. But we have these examples reflected to us so that we can become more aware and we can explore it more within ourselves. So that's really what I've been sitting with this morning, just this disappointment in the places where healing as a practice, as a gift, as a sacred work that our soul brings into this human journey, where it's not going well, where it's going really badly, and you know how to how to be so solid in my own integrity that I don't ever make choices that lead me down a path that wouldn't be that in my work, in my relationships. So of course when I'm sitting in uh, a moment that's tender or harsh or needing some outside exploration for guidance, I turn to a book and I turn to Broken Open this morning. I do read other books, but Broken Open and uh, the Gene Keys are definitely at my top favorites. So this one, Broken Open, is by Elizabeth Lesser. I've read from it before. Her subtitle is How Difficult Times Can Help Us Grow. And the one that called to me today is called Fierce Grace. It's, um, it's just a beautiful story about Ram Dass and his journey. You know, he's a nationally, internationally known healer and... So it was just perfect to read it today. So I'm going to read it to you. I don't know how long it'll take. It's several pages. Um, but I trust you will find some wisdom in it as I do. So this is from Elizabeth Lesser's Broken Open, Fierce Grace, page 72. In the 1960s, a young psychology professor named Richard Alpert left his teaching position at Harvard in a blaze of infamy. The son of a wealthy Boston Railroad magnate and a brilliant scholar and teacher he was the first 20th century professor to be fired from Harvard. His radical research with Timothy Leary into the use of LSD for psychological healing and the expansion of consciousness did not endear him to that staid academic community. Alpert went on in life to become Ram Dass, named by a guru in India who saw in him someone who could live up to the meaning of his name, servant of God. And he did. He has been a guide for a generation of spiritual seekers. In 1971, by the way, that was the year I was born, in 1971, his groundbreaking work, Be Here Now, was the best-selling book in the English language, outselling even Dr. Spock's baby in childcare. More than anyone, more than the Beatles, more than the Dalai Lama, Ram Dass deserves the credit for translating the ancient spiritual wisdom and practices of the East into the vernacular of the West. I have known Ram Dass, this is Elizabeth Lesser speaking, I have known Ram Dass for many years, first as his student when he returned from India in the early 1970s, then as a colleague when he led retreats at Omega Institute and sat on our board of directors, and later as a friend who helped me weather the storms of my divorce. Most recently, Ram Dass has needed help. This is a new position for him to be in, to be the one who needs help rather than the one who gives it, 
He is in the middle of a phoenix process, and he is the first to admit it. He is learning to be helpless. Many people know only the Ram Dass they read about or see from a distance at a conference or retreat. They know him as a wise, compassionate, and utterly brilliant man. I know that man, and I also know a different man. I know the man who hated to depend on anyone, who fled the scene if relationships became too sticky, who was used to running the show. I knew two Ram Dasses. The first Ram Dass uttered just a few of his well-chosen words, and dark corners of my mind were suddenly flushed with light. That Ram Dass was instrumental in my own Phoenix process. As I went into the flames, he was a touchstone for me. I knew he would be there if things got too hot, too painful. And as I emerged from the ashes, he helped me stay on track. He kept me honest when I wanted to blame others. Over and over, he turned me towards the truth, the truth of the moment and the truth of the cosmos. The other Ram Dass infuriated me. I fought with that Ram Dass at board meetings and threw my hands up in exasperation during retreats when he resisted my attempts at, at organization. He accused me of being controlling. I told him that he had issues with powerful women, that he liked to play the wild boy and assigned me the role of his overbearing mother. For years, we danced between appreciating each other and keeping our distance. As I once heard him say to a thousand people at a conference, human interactions reflect a dance between love and fear. Isn't that amazing? Human interactions reflect a dance between love and fear. That certainly described our relationship. And then something happened that changed Ram Dass and changed my relationship with him. It began one evening in 1997 when he was in bed at his home in California, thinking about how to end a book he was writing on the subject of aging. Lying there in the dark, he writes in his book, Still Here, I wondered why what I'd written seemed so incomplete, not quite rounded, grounded, or whole. I tried to imagine what life would be like if I were very old, not an active person of 65, traveling the world incessantly as a teacher and speaker, caught up in my public role, but as someone of 90, say, with failing sight and failing limbs. I was trying to feel my way into oldness. In the middle of his fantasy, the phone rang. He got up to answer it, but his leg gave way under him and he fell to the floor. He grasped for the phone, clumsily picked it up, and found he couldn't speak. His friend on the other end of the line sensed something was terribly wrong. He asked Ram Dass if he needed help, but there was no answer. Tap on the phone once for yes if you need help, his friend said, or tap twice for no. Ram Dass tapped no over and over again. His friend called for help. By the time help arrived, Ram Dass was still on the floor. There I was, he writes, flat on my back, still caught in my dream of the very old man who had now fallen down because his leg wouldn't work. My next recollection is of a group of firemen, straight out of central casting, staring into the old man's face, while I observed the whole thing as if from a doorway to the side. Through the next few hours, as he was rushed to the hospital, attended to by doctors and nurses, and treated for a massive cerebral hemorrhage, he stood to the side, witnessing his stroke with perplexed fascination. It was later, when he began to feel the pain of his condition, that Ram Dass understood the gravity of the situation. Only 10% of people who suffer his type of stroke survive. Being who he was, someone practiced in the art of prayer and mindfulness, someone who had lectured for years on accepting suffering as grist for the mill, he did not take his survival for granted. There was a reason he was still alive, 
and he set about to discover what it was. Three hospitals and hundreds of hours of rehabilitation later, Ramdas writes, I gradually eased into my new post-stroke life as someone in a wheelchair, partially paralyzed, requiring round-the-clock care and a degree of personal attention that made me uncomfortable. All my life I had been a helper. I had even collaborated on a book called How Can I Help? I now found myself forced to accept the help of others. Illness had shattered my self-image and opened the door to a new chapter in my life. The stroke was like a samurai sword cutting apart the two halves of my life. It was a demarcation between two stages. In a way, it's been like having two incarnations in one. This is me. That was him. I had not seen or even talked to the old him for several years. This is Elizabeth Lesser speaking again. My last communication with Ram Dass had been in a letter sent after a board meeting. I wrote to complain about something he had said in a meeting, something that had hurt my feelings. He never wrote back. The next time he came to teach at Omega, I was out of town. Then he left Omega's board of directors, and I had even less reason to see him. And then he had the stroke. During his recovery, friends kept me updated on his setbacks and his progress. At first, he was hooked up to oxygen. He couldn't talk, he couldn't eat. His right side was completely paralyzed. The doctors did not know if he would ever walk or speak again. Friends rallied to his side, but I didn't because I was occupied with something else. The week before Ramdas's stroke, my father, who at 85 was in better shape than I will ever be, went skiing as he often did, came home, ate dinner, went to sleep next to my mother and never woke up. Out of the clear blue sky, my father died. He was one of the 90% that did not survive a massive stroke. For months, there was little room in my heart for anything but the enormous grief I felt from the sudden loss of my father. I couldn't bear even to think about Ram Dass confined to a wheelchair, learning to talk again, dealing with physical pain and his own sense of loss. But the time came when I sorely wanted to see my old friend, and I hoped he would forgive my absence. A year after his stroke, I went to California to meet the new Ram Dass. Crossing over the Golden Gate Bridge, I was brought back in time to when I first met Ram Dass when I was living in San Francisco. I mulled over the experiences that made me who I am today and realized that Ram Dass had been a part of almost all of them. In many ways, he reminded me of my father, the guy out in front on the hiking trail, clearing the brush and setting the pace, never looking back assuming that the other wayfarers could make it on their own, should make it on their own. When I was four years old, my father took me to the top of a ski trail, pointed my skis downhill and said, follow me. <laughs> and when I was 19 and I read, be here now, there I was again, at the top of the mountain with my guide dancing away from me, beckoning me to follow, never turning around. Now my father was dead, Ram Dass was in a wheelchair, and I was dancing on my own. I walked up the path to his cottage in Marin County, the bright California sunshine shimmering through the oak trees, and saw Ram Dass sitting on the porch. He was slumped over in the wheelchair, his trembling right arm tied to the chair's railing, his white hair in Einsteinian disarray. He looked up at me and waved with his good hand. Elizabeth, he called with delight. I caught my breath and tears came to my eyes. My heart broke open. I felt as if I had come home after a long exile. I'm home, dear, I joked. 
Yes, you're home, Ram Dass said sincerely. Welcome home. What ensued will go down in the record of my heart as one of those rare times in life when you finally rest, when you put down the burden of striving and a sense of well-being spreads like honey into every corner of your consciousness. There was nowhere else to go, nothing to do, no one to be, just now, just this precious day, these shared breaths with a friend. I learned something that afternoon that will serve me for the rest of my life. All along in my relationship with Ram Das, I had been aware of two sides of the man, the brilliant teacher Ram Das and the frustrating friend Ram Das. But now I was with a third Ram Das, one who seemed to be both simpler and grander than the other two combined. This was not yet another side of the man. This was his soul, his core, his true self. The other Ram Dasses stepped aside in deference, as if they were merely surface-level apparitions, as if the good Ram Das was a temporary ghost formed of genetic gifts and karmic awards, and the bad Ram Das was made of learned defenses, coping mechanisms, and old wounds. This new Ram Das, this soul version, contained the other two and transformed them into a whole and luminous being. Of course, the Ram Das I was now greeting had been there all the time. It was not just something in him that had changed to allow the soul to shine through. Something had shifted in me too, so that my soul was greeting his, and we both had come home. Ram Dass and I would have many more opportunities in the years to come to chafe up against each other's personalities. But sitting there on the porch, in the warm and dappled sunlight, we communed, soul to soul, not just for a moment, but for a couple of hours, as we sat holding each other's hands like two school friends. It was difficult for Ram Dass to form full flowing sentences. The words came out slowly, each one separated from the one before like solitary naked thoughts, standing all alone on the stage, shivering in the spotlight, naked thoughts without the costumes of language. Most of the time, Ram Dass struggled for the words to clothe the thoughts, yet every now and then a fully formed sentence would emerge in the finery for which he was famous. Early on in the visit, as Ram Dass searched for the words, I began to fill in the blanks for him, after one such awkward exchange, he turned to me and out popped one of his one-liners. I speak more slowly now. Now people finish my sentences and answer their own questions. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. I asked him questions about the stroke and its aftermath. He answered a few. When he could not find the words, I finished his sentences for him. And in doing so, answered most of the questions myself. It was funny, fishing for words for a master orator. I felt like an imposter, stealing his thoughts and turning them into speech. And he asked me some questions about my life, my kids, and my husband. He complimented me on a book I had just published. He would not have done that in the past. He wanted to hear all about the circumstances behind a Christmas photo I had sent him of my family and me on a trip in Ireland. You look like drunk monkeys, he laughed, so happy. I said, Ram Dass, I think the stroke has made you more human, 
more a real human being and more an eternal soul, both at the same time. His eyes filled with tears and he squeezed my hand. Grace, he said. Stroke is heavy grace. Fierce grace. We sat in silence for a while, digesting the words. Before, before stroke, Ramdas continued in his halting speech. Before, happy grace, love grace, good things kept happening to me. Then stroke, lose things, also grace, fierce grace. I understand, I said. What did you lose? What did fierce grace take away? Ego, Ramdas said, making the motion of a blade slashing his throat. Ego, gone. Nothing more to lose. Ego breaks open. Then you see who you really are. Perhaps I was finishing his thoughts now, not just his words, but I looked into Ramdas's eyes and I understood what he was trying to tell me. He was saying, this is the real me. Please always know that behind all of my human behaviors, behind the best of me and the worst of me, behind the ego struggling to survive, is my soul longing to mingle with yours. And he was telling me that behind everyone's learned behaviors and odd eccentricities lurks a soul, ready to make contact if only coaxed out through a crack in the ego. Would it that it take something less than fierce grace to break us open? Later on, I read in Ram Dass's book a less jumbled description of fierce grace. Here's what he writes. For me to see the stroke as grace required a perceptual shift. It was a shift from taking the point of ego, taking the point of view of the ego, to taking the point of view of the soul. I used to be afraid of things like strokes, but I've discovered that the fear of the stroke was worse than the stroke itself. I've now been given a fully rounded understanding of grace. What was changed through the stroke was my attachment to the ego. The stroke was unbearable to the ego, and so it pushed me into the soul level. Because when you bear the unbearable, something within you dies. My identity flipped over and I said, so that's who I am, I am a soul. I ended up where looking at the world from the soul level is my ordinary everyday state. And that's grace. That's almost the definition of grace. And so that's why, although from the ego's perspective, the stroke is not much fun, from the soul's perspective, it's been a great learning opportunity. When you're secure in the soul, what's to fear? Since the stroke, I can say to you with an assurance I couldn't have felt before, that faith and love are stronger than any changes, stronger than aging, and I am very sure, stronger than death. The ego, the ego, Ramdas said, this is back in the story. It's like this wheelchair. It's, it's a beautiful wheelchair. Use it. Enjoy it. Just don't think it is you. Don't take yourself so, so personally. We laughed at that. And then we sat silently together in the slanting light until it was time for me to leave. So now what? I asked Ramdas thinking about our friendship, about his life. What's next? Enough is enough, Ramdas said, 
that's what's next. This is enough. He squeezed my hand again. Tears rolled down his cheeks. Tears that said more than he could ever have said before the stroke. Tears that spoke of forgiveness and love and wonder. There was nothing more to say. I got up. I kissed his cheek, hugged him, and patted the wheelchair. Good wheelchair, I said. As I walked down the path, Ramdas called to me. I turned around. Goodbye, Elizabeth, he called, waving like a fool. Come home soon. Fierce Grace by Elizabeth Lesser from Broken Open. Thank you for the beautiful guidance that this book offers on my path. Thank you for tuning in to today's vibration. Let's take this message of pure love out into all of our communities and continue expanding love here on Gaia. So much love from my heart to yours.